the National Archives podcast series. Was the Cromwellian Protectorate a military dictatorship? I'd like to introduce Professor Barry Coward, who's Emeritus Professor of History at Burbeck. He's President of the Historical Association and President of the Cromwell Association. Good. Well, thank you very much. If you're familiar with school or university history courses, you know that the question, was the Cromwellian protectorate a military dictatorship, is one that's really kind of routinely asked on examination papers. So when I was asked to give this lecture, uh, that, the quest that question came to mind because um, one of the things that the Historical Association that's sponsoring this event is trying to do in its centenary year is to kind of cement and extend its links with teachers of history in schools and universities and their students. So I wanted a lecture title that, that will be attractive to that, that constituency and I'm really pleased that there's lots of people from that constituency here and I welcome them warmly. But I also wanted to give a lecture that will be of interest to a wider group of people uh, than that. I wanted it to be of interest to everyone interested in the past, and especially in the exciting period of British history, which is the 17th century. I mean, in my view, the 17th century is the most exciting period in British history. So I chose my lecture title with the general audience in mind, too, because in my experience, the question, was the Cromwellian protectorate a military dictatorship, is one that has the capacity to divide people of all kinds today. Uh, it, 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 Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s has, has the power to not open up, but actually to reveal, it seems to me, existing deep divisions in contemporary British and Irish society. I know this to my cost. Uh, when I go to social occasions and people ask me what you do, and some people say they're a plumber, and I say, well, I'm a historian, and I'm interested in Oliver Cromwell. And, I, and I've just become used to the kind of reactions that you get. Some are really diverse and adverse. You know, people will say, how on earth you know, can you study such a horrible, brutal kind of dictatorial man? But others are, are, are completely opposite and, are, and obviously see Oliver with great warmth and affection. Uh, so was the Cromwellian protectorate uh, a military dictatorship? You know, has this capacity uh, to provoke strong answers, both yes and no, outside as well as inside the educational academic world? And I wondered where you stood and where, where you stood on it. I'm going to do a little kind of uh, straw poll, if you don't mind. I'm going to ask you to put your hand up if your answer to this question is yes, if it's no, and don't know. There's only three alternatives you have here, <laughs> yes and no, no. But I was wondering if you... The, so the question is, was the Cromwellian protector to military dictatorship? If those think it was yes, would you put your hands up? Yeah, OK. Just a little sprinkling. Yeah, good. But no, guess, that's good. OK, fine. But what about no's, the no's? It was not. All right, OK. So there must be quite a lot of don't knows then. Yeah, don't know. Yeah. Sitting on the fence kind of people. Well, that's really interesting, I think. And uh, I, I, I mean, you, I think you'll have the opportunity for a more considered reply uh, early next year when the Historical Associa Association, as part of its web debates, is going to have a web debate on this very question. And you can log on to that in, in March uh, and um, actually between the 5th and the 17th of March and uh, put your views and discuss with other people virtually uh, on this very, very question. Well, what's my answer? Uh, that's what you, I guess you've come to hear. Well, my starting point uh, for giving my answer to this question is to express my belief that this question is fundamentally a bad one. I just think it's a silly question. It's asked on examination papers, but I think it's a bad one. Uh, why do I think that? Well, I think it's bad because it's rather like the question that's beloved of lawyers who ask a husband who loves his wife and has never hit her, have you stopped beating your wife? Do you know the have you stopped beating your wife question? You know, it's a question that invites only one or two answers, either yes or no. Answering no for this poor husband is obviously completely out of the question uh, because he's never started beating his wife. But so too is yes, because if he says yes, this would imply that although he doesn't beat his wife now, he did so at some time in the past. In other words, it's a question uh, that doesn't leave room for a truthful answer. And I think, was the Cromwellian military dictatorship, uh, was the Cromwellian protector to military dictatorship, uh, is exactly that kind of question, I think. Faced with uh, that question, historians are put in roughly the same uncomfortable position as that poor husband, and as your reaction demonstrated just now, you were. I mean, for the blunt fact is that it's a question that can't be answered, or at least I can't answer it, with either a blunt yes or a blunt no. 
I don't want to answer it with a no because, as we'll see in the first part of this talk, there were some aspects of the regime that are not unlike those used by dictatorial regimes elsewhere and at other times. But equally, I don't want to answer it with a blunt yes because there are so many other aspects of the Cromwellian protectorate that make the term military dictatorship a very inaccurate label for it, and those are the aspects that I'll identify in the second part of this talk. And so I felt the need, therefore, to give this talk a third part, a concluding part, in which I'm going to explain why asking this question, which focuses on the Cromwellian protectorate's constitutional or unconstitutional features, I think tends to lead us away from the true nature of the regime. It seems to me that for many of those at the heart of the regime, certainly a protector Oliver Cromwell himself, and maybe, although I'm less certain about this, also protector Richard Cromwell as well. But certainly for those at the heart of the regime, I think the constitutional form of the regime was relatively unimportant in comparison with their aspirations to bring about massive cultural changes in Britain. And that's a feature of the Cromwellian protectorate that I think this question tends to obscure and that I'll end by emphasising. However, I think it would be really foolish uh, to deny that the Cromwellian protectorate was completely disassociated from military power or that it never used unconstitutional or illegal methods. I mean, it's glaringly obvious that to a very large extent this was a regime which owed its establishment and its, uh, uh, um, and its continuation not to constitutional legitimacy, but it owed it to the power of the army. It also showed itself to be a regime that was staffed and headed by men who were at times, as we'll see, not averse to using their military muscle uh, to govern the country and to ride roughshod over the law. So let me briefly mention some of the major examples of these, can I call them, authoritarian aspects of the Cromwellian protectorate. And if you take these in chronological order, the first example is the way that the protectorate came into being. Uh, beginning with those really dramatic events on the 20th of April and the 12th of December 1653. On the first of these, on the 20th of April 1653, Oliver Cromwell, clearly driven by barely controlled anger, barely concealed anger, at many of those in the Parliament of the day, it was called the Rump Parliament, been sitting since 1649. Uh, on the 20th of April, Cromwell went into the Chamber of the House of Commons where Parliament was sitting, and after pouring a torrent of verbal abuse on MPs. He then called in the soldiers and sent members of parliament packing and declared that this parliament was now over, it was dissolved. And in the next few days, Cromwell tried to give what he'd done some gloss of constitutional legitimacy. He came up with stories that he'd been driven to act uh, to forestall an attempt by members of parliament to perpetuate the power of the rump parliament by putting off elections. But even before historians began to speculate with some justification that members of parliament had not in fact been planning to do any such thing, these kinds of justifications, this kind of spin, if you like, for what Cromwell did on the 20th of April 1653 held very little water. And it's really difficult not to sympathise with those expelled rumpers, the Commonwealth's men, people like Sir Henry Vane Jr., Edmund Ludlow and Sir Arthur Hesselridge, who have been kicked out by Cromwell on the 20th of April. It's difficult not to sympathise with these people because they could never again forgive Cromwell for what they considered to be a really unforgivable act of military force to overthrow the parliamentary liberties that Cromwell often said he'd held dear to his heart. And then again, a few months later, in December 1653, the army was again at the, used to get rid and to interfere in politics, and this time to get rid of the assembly that had sat since the dissolution of the rump, the so-called Barebones Parliament in, in, that was got rid of in December. It's true that this was an assembly that came to an end largely because of the machinations of some of its members, people like Sir Charles Wolseley, who arrived on the 12th of December uh, early in the morning uh, when Barebones was sitting, and he and his coterie of few colleagues voted to bring the assembly to an end before the majority arrived. But nevertheless, soldiers were needed later in the day to lock the door of St. St. Stephen's Chapel where the assembly met and to stop some of its members from continuing to meet. So, you know, here's the, the Commonwealth Protectorate in its very early days. It grew out of the use of military power. 
and the establishment of the Cromwellian Protectorate followed four days after the expulsion of Barebones on the 12th. On the 16th of December, the Protectorate began. And it, it began in circumstances that are equally devoid of constitutional legitimacy. Uh, not surprisingly, that was the view of the Commonwealth's men. Edmund Ludlow, whose memoirs are a very good source for the history of this period, has said that the um, instruments of government, which was the constitution which established uh, the protectorate, he said that the instrument of government was a work of darkness. And I think it's difficult to disagree with that description because um, it was a constitution which emerged from uh, secret discussions amongst a small group of soldiers, military men, of whom John Lambert was the dominant figure. And although, as we'll see in the second part of this talk, although, as we'll see, this new constitution, the instrument of government, tried, not without some success, to give the regime some constitutional legitimacy, the plain fact is that the instrument of government was drafted by soldiers. It was not the product of you know, a constitutional open conference uh, like that, for example, that established the Constitution of the Uni United States in 1776. It's also true that some aspects of the new constitution reflected its drafters' marked suspicion of parliaments that were undoubtedly rooted in the army's view never again to give to parliament the kind of power exercised by the rump. Uh, and therefore, under the instrument of government, you'll actually find that future parliaments were stripped of the executive powers that were held by the rump. But not only that, uh, the instrument of government gave the protector the right to veto uh, parliamentary legislation on key issues like religious liberty. And also, uh, protector and council were given the right by the instrument of government to legislate themselves without parliament before the first parliament met. Furthermore, a crucial clause was also inserted in the instrument of government which said that everyone elected to parliaments shall not have the power to alter the government as it is hereby settled in one single person and a parliament. And that clause was one of the justifications for the fact that when the first two protectorate parliaments met in 1654 and 1656, army power, naked army power, was used to exclude from both these parliaments men who had been elected in their constituencies, but men whom those in the army didn't like. Only a week or so after the meeting of the first protectorate parliament in September 1654, uh, members were subjected to a very angry speech by Protector Oliver and they were then forced to sign a document recognising the immutability of the government that had been established in December 1653 or resign their seats. Uh, something like 50 to an eight, 80 members of Parliament decided not to sign and 50 to 80 members of Parliament were excluded from sitting in that Parliament by military power. In 1656, uh, the second protectorate parliament, the protector and council set about an even more thoroughgoing ex exclusion from that parliament of those thought to be its most powerful critics. And in that parliament, something like 100 uh, newly elected members of parliament were not allowed to sit by the army. So these are, you know, uh, examples of blatant use of military power against elected parliaments. There's no denying that. I guess the best known, the most obvious example of this, can I call it, iron-fisted side of the Cromwellian Protectorate, are to be found in the period after the expulsion of the first Protectorate Parliament in January 1655. Actually, for me, this period, when the first Parliament ended in January 1655, the months after that, for me, make up the most fascinating part of the history of the Cromwellian Protectorate, a point I'll come back to at the end, because I think it's during those few months that is laid bare the essential true nature of the protectorate. But the lesser important point I'm making about that period now is that, as I say, in it are to be found many examples of apparently dictatorial behaviour by those at the heart of the regime. And that certainly describes the very heavy-handed, merciless treatment given to those who'd taken part in a royalist rebellion led by Colonel John Penruddock in March 1655. I mean, what happened to Penruddock and his uh, followers, I think, has many resonances uh, with current modern times when governments, governments have shown uh, themselves to put security before legal considerations in dealing with terrorists. Uh, similarly, in 1655, those whom the protectorate undoubtedly considered to be terrorists 
royalist supporters like Penruddock were executed and many of their supporters, whether or not they were found guilty of treason, were transported to servitude in the plantations of the West Indies. Uh, what's more, two of the judges uh, in, in those terrorist trials, if you like, Francis Thorpe and Richard Newdigate, who were sent to York to try others who were suspected of taking part in royalist plots in the north, those two judges, uh, after being questioned by the council for doubts they'd expressed about the validity of the protectorate treason ordinance under which these trials were held, were simply sacked from their offices. Uh, an even more blatant display of interference in the legal process in this interesting period in 1655, uh, an interference in the legal process by protector and counsel, is the infamous case of George Coney, uh, early, in 16, early in May 1655. Uh, it's a case which came before the Court of Upper Bench. The Court of Upper Bench was the name during the protectorate that was given to the King's Bench Court. Uh, you may know this case. It's a very famous and infamous one. Uh, George Coney was a merchant. Uh, he was imprisoned and fined for refusing to pay the government customs duties on silk that he'd imported and for forcibly preventing customs officials from seizing his property. Uh, when he uh, subsequently again refused to pay the fine, he was again imprisoned, and his lawyers then brought his case to court, claiming that the financial ordinance by which the government was claiming the right to collect customs duties was not valid. It was not valid, they said, because it had been uh, issued in March 1654 before a Parliament met. It was an ordinance simply issued by Protector and Council. It had not been ratified by Parliament. It had not been approved by Parliament. In other words, these duties were not legally valid. They were an unparliamentary tax. Uh, Coney's lawyers uh, put that case at the Court of Upper Bench uh, they challenged, therefore, the validity of the Protectorate Constitution and what happened to them. They were flung in jail, simply flung in jail by the Protectorate Council. Uh, moreover, the Council also reprimanded one of the senior judges in that, in that case, uh, Chief Justice Roll, uh, for allowing the case to proceed, under which pressure he resigned. You know, these are undoubtedly iron-fisted authoritarian actions on the part of the, Crom on the Cromwellian Protectorate. And that was in May 1655. A month later, uh, two of the commissioners for the Great Seal, uh, more senior lawyers, Bulstrode Whitelock and Thomas Widrington, were also forced to resign for maintaining their opposition to another 1654 ordinance, this time one that had reformed the Court of Chancery. Senior lawyers refused to put the ordinance into effect. They were simply uh, forced out of office. The same kind of bullying tactics were also used in July 1655 against Sir Peter Wentworth. Sir Peter Wentworth was a Republican, a, a, a Republican Commonwealth man in Warwickshire, but he refused to pay his income tax, his assessment it was known, on the grounds that this had not been approved by Parliament. The council responded by hauling Wentworth before them and making him withdraw his objections. Just about this time, too, uh, the regime tightened up it, the, its censorship of the press uh, by establishing, by order of council, a three-man censorship committee. I'm going to explain later that this was not totally effective, but it was a committee which did succeed in suppressing all newspapers apart from two weekly government ones, the Public Intelligencer and Mercurius Politicus. Uh, these were government newspapers uh, that were firmly under the government control, exercised by their editor, Marchmont Nedham. And John Thurlow, who was the secretary of the Protectorate Council and also in charge of the intelligence, the spy network of the Protectorate, was very active at this time, keeping an eye on what was printed and written that might be seditious. And I think something of the the protectorate's cavalier disregard for the law at this stage, I think, is illustrated, too, by what it did when, in September 1655, this is quite complicated, you'll have to bear with me, but in September 1655, a Parliamentary Act of 1647, which had been extended by the Rump in 1652, and this was an act which had allowed the government to interfere to, interfere, to prevent uh, ex-royalists, people who they called delinquents, as I said, we would call terrorists. This was a, a, an act which allowed governments to interfere to prevent ex-royalists from being elected to town governments. This act was about to lapse in September 1655. So to prevent the government from losing that power, the protectorate, via the protectorate and the council, simply issued a proclamation. 
That's all they issued, a proclamation uh, that kept in force indefinitely the terms of that About to Lapse Act. But I guess easily the best known example of the government's willingness to use extra legal measures against those it thought were threats to the regime is, of course, the rule of the Major Generals. Uh, when in 1655-6, England for a very brief period uh, was divided into regions ruled over by a senior military commander, a, a, a rule that was financed by the so-called decimation tax. This was a tax which was to be paid by anyone who'd fought against Parliament or who had supported the Royalist cause in any way since the outbreak of the Civil War in 1642. This is a really interesting tax. It got its nickname Decimation Tax because all those who had a royalist past who were worth at least £1,000 in land were to pay 10% of their rental income from their estates in tax. And all those who possessed property but little landed estate were to pay in tax £10 and every £1,500 of its value. In addition, um, anyone deemed to have taken part in royalist plots since the beginning of the protectorate was to be imprisoned uh, or sent into exile and have their estates confiscated by the state, while others who were merely suspected of being active royalists were to keep their estates but to suffer imprisonment or banishment. Uh, these were, of course, what we would now call anti-terrorist measures, uh, to which were added orders that prevented royalists from keeping arms and in December 1655, anyone with a royalist past was ordered uh, to make bonds, to sign a document that if they were later found guilty of conspiring against the regime, would have meant that they would have lost huge sums of money. I think what's interesting about these measures is that then as now, these kinds of measures were justified by the necessities of, to use a modern phrase, a perceived war against terror. Oliver Cromwell and his allies, just like George Bush and Tony Blair, justified these measures by the failure of the ordinary rules of law to combat this perceived terrorist threat. Or, as a protectorate proclamation put it really quite clearly in September 1655, if the supreme magistrate were in such cases tied to the ordinary rules and could not proceed against the suspected, there would be no safety from conspiracy. And I think with that in mind, in October 1655, the government established an official in London, they called him a register. Uh, he had deputies uh, throughout the localities, uh, and all these people were to work with the major generals to keep tabs on um, the movements of all suspected uh, royalist terrorists. Uh, Cromwell's justification for all this was clear enough in a speech that he later made in defence, again, of these emergency measures, emergency, essentially illegal measures. He, he, he explained that all this was necessary because, he said, if anything should be done but what is according to the law. In other words, what he meant by that is, if the only thing we do is according to the law, the throat of a nation may be cut till we send for some to make a law. And I think that actually is not unlike the mentality uh, that lies behind, for example, the establishment of Guantanamo Bay. And episodes like that, I think, are, of course, grist to the mill of those who persist in seeing Oliver Cromwell as an archetypal military dictator. But, and here, just to alert you, if you're falling asleep, I'm now moving into my second kind of part of my talk. That's a position that only becomes tenable, I think, by ignoring many other features of the Cromwellian protectorate. And to punch home that point, let me pick out now some major features of the protectorate that definitely cannot be categorised in any way uh, as the actions of a military dictatorship. Here the first and most obvious is the limited impact of the major generals, the limited impact that they had in imposing dictatorial methods of government, uh, together with the short time that their rule lasted. But the major generals, of course, did not set up a form of, of local government that replaced the traditional one of JP's quarter sessions and so on. They were a kind of uh, parallel uh, local government system. They were sent to the provinces to work with, to cooperate with the existing system. And most of them did their best to do that and to work within the normal kind of administrative channels. Above all, they were active for only a few months at the end of 1655 and the beginning of 1656. 
It's true that the damage done to the popularity of the regime by the major generals far outweighed their brevity, the brevity of their existence. I mean, just look at the anger, the loathing of major generals that was unleashed during the general elections in the summer of 1656. But I think set against that must be put the evidence of the ways that the protectorate did begin to appeal very, very slowly, but it did begin to appeal to many people as a regime that provided security and stability. It slowly became apparent that the protectorate was not bringing about the collapse of order and promoting instability. On the contrary, as many local studies have shown during the last 30 years, local government in all parts of the country worked very well. Um, the, the poor relief system was administered efficiently. Uh, the spectre of riots and social disorder never materialised. And abroad, in Scotland and Ireland and the wider world, the protectorate had a very, very successful set of international policies that brought an added sense of security and stability after the traumatic events of the previous years that had seen civil war and major political and ecclesiastical revolutions. Up and down the country, that's what I'm saying, up and down the country, there was a return to the normality of political and social life, which I think is another side to the protectorate, to set against the view of it as a, you know, a novel regime, a kind of un-English kind of regime, if you like, a dictatorial regime, seeking to undo constitutional normal ways of doing things. That, that many of those who established and ran the protectorate had aspirations to rule generally constitutionally in other respects through regular parliaments is, is also evident from some of the clauses in the instruments of government, not all of which were hostile to granting parliament's power. Uh, the drafters' mistrust of parliament that I commented on earlier did not prevent them from making really firm provisions for regular meetings of parliamentary sessions, for example, Article 7 of the Instruments of Government said that Parliament should meet at least once every third year. Article 8 made it illegal for Parliaments to be dissolved without their own consent until each session had lasted at least five months. And most remarkable of all is Article 11, which made provision that if the Protector failed to call a Parliament, uh, then the Commissioner of the Great Seal would automatically issue uh, parliamentary writs for calling of general elections and a new parliament. And also under the instrument of government, I think it's really quite interesting that great efforts were made uh, to put limitations on the power of the protector. Various articles in the instrument decreed that the protector should govern by the advice of the council and for the council to have a major say in the appointment of new councillors. So this is a real uh, departure from the way that uh, kings ran their privy council, for example. Uh, the, the, not only was this a state which had a written constitution, but that written constitution said that its head should rule uh, with the assistance and advice of the council. Uh, and so that, for example, uh, Article 4 made it compulsory for the protector to make decisions regarding peace and war and the army and the navy when parliament was not in session with the consent of the council. It's true that some of these powers were weakened a little by the second constitution of the protector, the so-called protectorate, the so-called humble petition and advice in 1657. But even under that constitution, most of these um, limitations, as it were, on the position of the protector remained. And I really think there's a really broader point to be made here, which is really how, how actually remarkable how remarkably undictatorial uh, the protectorate and Oliver Cromwell personally often were. Uh, the Major General's experiment apart, little thought seems to have been given by this group of men to establishing procedures to impose or coerce people. They knew what they wanted to do, a point I'm going to come back to later. They don't seem to have uh, made very many efforts to Im impose or coerce people to do that. More often, persuasion seems to have been the instinctive reaction of Cromwell and those around him to criticism and opposition. I mean, take, for example, the very end of 1654, the beginning of 1655, when, as I've said, the protectorate was favouring authoritarian measures uh, to push its measures through. What you find Protector Oliver doing uh, is taking a real personal initiative to try to convert his critics to his point of view rather than using a big stick. Uh, for example, in the last days of 1654, he had long con conversations with 
fiercely radical, extreme critics of the regime, uh, people like the Fifth Monarchists, uh, John Simpson and Christopher Feek, who were constantly sniping at the regime. Cromwell got them in and talked to them. In February 1656, there were widespread newspaper reports that um, Cromwell was having discussions with another uh, famous extreme Fifth Monarchist, John Rogers. Cromwell also tried to work his personal charm on a very another radical critic of the regime, uh, the Quaker leader George Fox, uh, in February 1655. Um, Cromwell had a long meeting in Whitehall with George Fox. The Quakers at this time are real radical extremists, and uh, Cromwell was trying to bring them into, into the regime. And he, in, rather than imposing uh, and coercing them, what I'm saying is I think his instinctive reaction was try to try to speak to them and, 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 and convert them. And at the other end of the, the religious political spectrum as well, the, the conservative end of it, you find Cromwell trying very hard at times to work to try to convince Anglican Episcopalians that they could support this regime. Uh, for example, in the first weeks of 1656, Cromwell had meetings with Archbishop Usher, who's the representative of the, the old um, Episcopalian Church and other Anglicans trying to find ways of allowing these people to worship uh, freely on the condition that they gave assurances that they would not support terrorist plots against the regime. And I think this decidedly undictatorial nature of the Cromwellian Protectorate is reflected also in the really relatively light touch with which the government used its powers of censorship against critics of the regime. It's true as I explained earlier, this is a point that you can overplay. As I've said earlier, you should not underestimate the efficiency of Thurlow and his spy machine in keeping a very censorious eye on seditious or potentially seditious literature. But equally, just a really cursory survey of the um, printed and published material of the 1650s, you know, pamphlets and poems and prints, uh, that were not censored in the 1650s shows how lax this regime was in not banning critical and satirical material. I mean, it's really extraordinary that not only did Cromwell and those around him pay remarkably little attention, hardly any attention at all, in fact, to controlling the presses to ensure that officially approved images of it were promoted. There are hardly any of those published uh, in the 1650s, unlike other uh, dictatorial regimes that have wall charts and wall paintings and so on, uh, portraying the image of the regime. This, this, this regime didn't do it. But e even more remarkably is the fact that hundreds, literally hundreds, of scurrilous, anti-government, Steve Bell-type you know, ca cartoons, images of it, were, were promoted um, uh, and poured off the presses uncensored. And if you need convincing of that point, then just get hold of a really good book uh, by an American uh, English literature uh, stroke historian uh, called Lawrence Knoppers. Uh, uh, Laura Knoppers. Uh, the book's called Constructing Cromwell, Ceremony, Portraits and Print, 1645 to 1661, in which are reproduced just lots of cartoons of Cromwell and the regime that would have caused the authors of them uh, to suffer grave penalties if they'd been published, say, in the authoritarian England of Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, you know, once ordered the hand of a publisher to be cut off for publishing a pamphlet critical of the Queen, and it was done. The, ha the hand was cut off. Uh, or in the dictatorship that was the Russia of Joseph Stalin. You don't get any of that kind of heavy-handed censorship in the Cromwellian protectorate. And lastly... I'd put in, just to counterbalance the dictatorial nature of the Cromwellian protectorate, the really remarkably tolerant attitude of many of those in the regime, especially uh, Oliver Cromwell himself, to uh, the tolerance of a, a wide spectrum of religious views. Um, clearly, this is a, 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 you know, a difficult kind of... It, um, topic. Uh, the Cromwellian protectress as a haven of religious toleration is a picture that needs very, very careful handling. Uh, the spectrum of religious views uh, that even the most tolerant of the protectors' members, who was arguably Oliver Cromwell himself, the, the, the spectrum of religious views that he was willing to tolerate was very, very definitely limited by the standards of those who nowadays advocate religious toleration. Uh, although remarkably few Catholics were actually executed for their faith in Cromwellian England, I think only two, uh, Catholics were, of course, officially excluded from Cromwellian toleration, as were so 
also some Protestants, uh, people who we now call Unitarians, who at the time they called Sakinians, uh, who were represented in the 1650s by John Biddle. These are people who denied the concept of the Holy Trinity. Uh, they were clearly out of the pale of Cromwell's toleration, as were the early Quakers, like James Naylor, the early Quakers who put their faith in individual conscience rather than the teaching of the Bible. I think Cromwell found it difficult to bring those into, into his, the pale of his toleration. But his treatment of both those characters, in fact, Biddle and Naylor, uh, was characteristically lenient. But I thought, don't think you should be misled uh, by that into exaggerating the breadth of Cromwellian religious tolerance. But having said that, and having made all those qualifications, my big point is that the Cromwellian tolerance, Cromwellian toleration, such as it was, was much broader than many other people in the 17th century were willing to go, and certainly wider than that that had existed in the Laudian world of Charles I of the 1630s, or that was to exist in the Clarendon Code world of Charles II after 1660. And, you know, whatever you may have been reading in newspaper articles or in the journal History Today uh, by Elian Glazer, uh, one of the beneficiaries of the Cromwellian religious tolerance, limited though it might be by modern standards, were undoubtedly the Jews, who did begin to trickle back into England to live relatively undisturbed lives from the end of 1655. Uh, the, the best writer on Cromwellian religion is the historian Colin Davis and Colin Davis has made clear that Cromwell was not particularly interested in imposing one form of church worship or church government as against another. Uh, Davis called this aspect of Cromwell's belief his anti-formalism uh, and instead uh, Cromwell was concerned to allow a fairly wide degree of different religious practices and I think this is really encapsulated in a proclamation that he issued in February uh, 1655, uh, in which he says that not all religious beliefs can be tolerated. Those, those religious beliefs which threaten public order were not to be tolerated. But those, those were the exceptions. Generally, he says in this proclamation, that his duty, he said, was to preserve and continue this freedom and liberty to all persons in this commonwealth fearing God, though of different judgments, by protecting them against all such who shall, by imposing upon the consciences of their brethren, seek to hinder them therein. 17th section language is very difficult, and it's kind of, you have to read that to see it. But when you, when you read it and you, and you, and you, and you decode it, uh, that, that seems to me to be a, a great statement of, of um, a kind of religious toleration. And that doesn't seem to me to be the statement of a dictator, military or otherwise. So, you know, where have we got? Where does all that leave us? Well, to be frank, it just leaves us, I think, in a very unsatisfactory state. Uh, you know, I've dutifully followed the question. You know, the, the examiners gave it to me and I started answering it. And, I, you know, and, and I've, I've done my best. But I've reached the conclusion that the Cromwellian protectorate uh, fits neither into a box labelled military dictatorship nor does it fit into one that's labelled a constitutional regime. All I've concluded is that the Cromwellian protectorate was a kind of hybrid. It was a cross between the two. Indeed, all I've done so far is to show you why this question is, as I said at the beginning, fundamentally a bad one, because the Cromwellian protectorate simply can't be categorised or labelled, or it shouldn't be, in constitutional terms. And indeed, I think the attempt to do that is not only difficult, it's also a very arid exercise that doesn't actually further our understanding of this really fascinating regime. It, it obscures rather than reveals its true nature. So what then is a good label for the regime? Well, to, to find one, I actually think you need to move away from considerations of what kind of constitution uh, those who led the Cromwellian protectorate wanted. I mean, ideally, as I've said, they wanted a government by a single person and regularly elected parliaments. They were quite clear on that. Those were the two, two of the principles that Oliver Cromwell himself stressed in a speech to Parliament in September 1654. He said those are two of the principles which he called fundamentals to good government. But that's about, as far as I can see, that's about the limits of Oliver Cromwell's constitutional aspirations. I think that just as in his religious beliefs, Anti-formalism is a key concept, as also in his ideas of, regarding his ideas of government. He had no fixed ideas about what the government should be. 
the search for the kind of constitution the Cromwellian protectorate was, I think is not worthwhile because for Cromwell and others, that was not what's, what was at the forefront of their minds. They weren't thinking about that at all. I think what was important to them was not, was, was not what kind of government it was, but what government did, what it allowed people to do or not do. And for me, the primary of Oliver Cromwell um, was to bring about, in fact, not constitutional change in this country, uh, towards a military dictatorship or the other way. He, what he was trying to do was to bring about massive seismic cultural change in this country. And to understand that, you need another lecture. Uh, I haven't got any really time to do it, but uh, I mean, the, the starting point for understanding what he and others were trying to do, uh, what revolutionary things they were trying to do, is to recognise that he was the heir of a very, a very long post-Reformation tradition in this country that wanted to continue the Reformation by bringing about not just what they considered to be the half-reformation that had been achieved by Henry VIII, Edward VI, Elizabeth I and James VI and I. In other words, a reformation of church, government and liturgy and a milk and water one at that they would have considered. But what they wanted to do was not only to bring about a further reformation of church, government and liturgy, but essentially they wanted to bring about a second reformation. They call it a further reformation, which is a reformation of people's lives and thoughts. They wanted to change the way that people lived their lives and thought. Um, in, in, in effect, in short, what they wanted to do was to abolish sin. Um, and this is what he and his fellow godly Puritans often called a godly reformation, a reformation of manners. And I think that was the goal of the religious policies that he sought to persuade his fellow countrymen to adopt. These were policies aimed at creating a fairly broad uh, Protestant church within which people would have the freedom to find their own spiritual path to God, but also would have the space to live their lives free from sin. There'd be no drinking, uh, excessive drinking. Yvette, where are you? You wouldn't allow us to have drink tonight, and so yeah, Cromwell would be saying, good, I think, that's right. So, no, actually, he was in, he was, he was in favour of drinking, but not excessive drinking. The, the, the list of sins that they were going to abolish were many, uh, but it's adultery and swearing and excessive drinking and so on. Uh, this is a challenging kind of goal to achieve, you know, perhaps an unattainable one, but it is the one, I'm convinced, that Cromwell put at the top of his agenda or goals, far higher than that of attaining this type of constitutional settlement or that. And that, I think, is a conclusion. That conclusion that what's at the top of Cromwell's agenda is bringing about the Godler Reformation, not achieving a ki any kind of constitutional settlement. Uh, it, I, that's a conclusion, I think, is confirmed by what Cromwell did at most of the key moments in his life, certainly in the 1650s, when I think uppermost in his mind was the consideration that he must act as he did to safeguard the cause of Godly Reformation. And I've got only time to illustrate that with a word or two about two episodes, uh, what he did in 1655 and the rejection of the title of kingship in 1657 that I think and I hope will illustrate uh, that point. First, 1655. As I said earlier, uh, the months after the dissolution of the First Protectorate Parliament in January 1655 really provide a really fascinating insight into the aims and the mentality of those at the heart of the Cromwellian Protectorate. Uh, too often, or so it seems to me anyway, the leaders at this time have been portrayed as demoralised men. Uh, the, way that, the way that people have written about this period in 1655 is to see Cromwell and his allies demoralised uh, by a series of setbacks. The first protectorate parliament failed. Uh, soon after that came evidence of opposition from royalists at home in the shape of the Pembroke Rebellion. Soon after that came the setbacks of the failure of the so-called Western design. This was a Falklands-type uh, naval military expedition that the regime sent out to the Caribbean to fight the Spaniards. <laughs> And it failed dismally. And also in 1655 came evidence that the godly cause was under threat in Europe as well by the massacre of the Protestant Valdensians in the Piedmontese uh, Alpine uplands in 1655 by the Catholic Duke of Savoy. It's often said that all these events plunged the regime into a crisis, a crisis of despondency and demoralisation. Well, my reading of the impact of all this on the leaders of the protectorate is really fundamentally different from that. 
Because I think that signs of difficulties like these only serve to strengthen, not weaken, the resolves of these men to press ahead with their programme of reform. Uh, you know, these men are godly Puritans. They're well used to being an embattled minority in their, in their, in their communities. Uh, and they instinctively reacted, as a lot of minorities do, uh, to opposition uh, by strengthening their resolve. Opposition strengthened their resolve. Opposition merely served to reinforce, I think, the aims of the godly and convince them that they were right. And that's why I think in 1655 they determined to pursue their aims, if necessary, by new emergency methods. Uh, these methods, as we've seen, were not pursued beyond 1656. But the point I'm making, I hope really quite clearly, is that for, like, for people like Oliver Cromwell, the methods adopted to pursue their aims were negotiable. Uh, what was not negotiable was the aim of godly reformation. And I think that conclusion comes out even more clearly, and for me is strengthened, by one of the most interesting, certainly for the historian, and for Cromwell, the most traumatic episode in his whole political career uh, that I want to focus on briefly in order to bring this lecture to an end, which is the kingship affair. Uh, the offer by Parliament in 1657 to Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell uh, to become a King Oliver I. The title was given him on a plate. And as winter gave way to spring in 1657, Cromwell spent ages considering that offer. Uh, it was made repeatedly to him by delegations of members of Parliament. They came to him in those days in March and April saying, have you made up your mind? Please take the crown. And it was an offer that he clearly agonised over for weeks in March and April 1657. Uh, significantly, this is a time when he was rarely seen in public uh, and on the rare occasions when he had to appear in public as head of state. For example, on one occasion, a foreign ambassador came and he had to receive him in public. Uh, the newspaper reports say that the protector uh, had a very unkept, unkept, unkempt appearance. He hadn't shaved and he had a robe loosely wrapped round him and so on. Now, probably uh, one source of the torment uh, that brought about that unkempt appearance and that the offer brought him was that, um, uh, not surprisingly, the temptation to become king uh, was probably very great. I mean, I don't think it's fanciful of me uh, to think of Oliver Cromwell saying to himself, you know, imagine, you know, a man like me, uh, who only a few years ago uh, was the owner of a very small 17-acre farm in St Ives. Imagine, you know, becoming King Oliver I, the ruler of Britain and Ireland. Uh, and what perhaps I think also tempted him uh, to take the title was the prospect that becoming King Oliver I would bring his regime the support of those who were still suspicious of its radical and military credentials, uh, a prospect that was not ill-founded because those who promoted the kingship offer were conservative civilian Cromwellians like Roger Boyle, Lord Broghill, who were only held back from giving the protectorate their enthusiastic support by dislike of the regime's um, military uh, connections. I think what was going for uh, Cromwell accepting the title of Crown was the thought that he would thereby gain a lot of uh, conservative support in this country. But after a long period of agonising and introspection, as you know, Cromwell turned down the offer to become king. Why? Well, you know, there have been nearly as many answers to that question as there have been historians of Cromwell. Uh, a popular one is that he turned it down uh, because he feared uh, the army and what the army would think. And I think that can't be discounted totally. It's not at the top of my list, but I don't think it can be discounted totally because he was well, very well aware uh, that opinion in the army would view his accession as king, as a sellout, a sellout of the good old cause of godly reformation for which many soldiers believed the wars of the 1640s and early 50s had been fought. And I think that can't be discounted because Cromwell was told firmly by some of his old army comrades during these weeks that if he did, if he did become king, uh, that they would turn against him. Colonel Pride was said that he would assassinate him if he did it. But for me, fear of the army was not the prime consideration in Cromwell's mind when he rejected the offer to become king. I think Cromwell feared something, someone else, much more than he feared his army comrades. But the person or the, the being that Cromwell feared was God. Uh, uppermost in his mind, I think, in 1657, I think, was the nagging question, what would God think 
if I took this step of self-glorification? Would it not be seen by God as a cardinal sin? A sin, actually not merely of self-advancement, but would it not be seen by God as a sin of flying in the face of God's judgment that Cromwell believed had been exercised in 1649 by God when God had destroyed the monarchy in Britain? Cromwell firmly believed that the monarchy had been abolished in 1649 according to God's judgment. And that was the point that he made to a parliament, parliamentary delegation when he finally did reject the title on the 13th of April 1657. He finally turned it down. And this is part of a long speech that he made on that occasion, which actually does make this point in Cromwellian language. This is what he said. Truly, he said, the providence of God has laid the title of monarch aside providentially. God, he said, has seemed providentially not only to strike at the family, the Stuarts, but at the name. God has seemed to deal so. He's not only dealt with the persons and the family, but he hath blasted the title. In, in other words, that, that's Cromwell's um, interpretation of 1649. God was not only getting rid of the Stuarts, but he was getting rid of monarchy. Uh, and Cromwell's conclusion is this. I would not seek to set up that that providence hath destroyed and laid in the just. I would not build Jericho again. In other words, what he was saying is that I'm, I'm not willing to undo what God had done in 1649 by restoring monarchy in 1657. If I do that, I will be punished by God for it, who will withdraw his blessing uh, for the Cromwellian cause of God the Reformation. So my point simply is that in this episode, when Cromwell rejected kinship, you see a man for whom, in the last resort, his aim of godly reformation was to be all and end all of his government. It was not to bring about any changes in its constitution. And that insight, I think, actually, for me anyway, gets much nearer to the heart of the nature of this regime than anything else I've said so far in this talk. And that's why, if I had to give a label to the Cromwellian protectorate, it would not be military dictatorship, nor would it be a constitutional regime or a monarchy in all but name. It would be a label that indicates that this was a regime that had a, an agenda for revolutionary change. So my label for the Cromwellian protectorate is a revolutionary republic, not a military dictatorship. This event was recorded live on November the 23rd, 2006 at Foyles, London. It was presented by Professor Barry Coward of Birkbeck College, University of London. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>